Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Russ Terry founder and CEO of Life Coach Radio Network. Today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. That's audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. Coach Radio. And now, here's today's show. Hello, everyone. This is the Life Coach Radio Network on Blog Talk Radio. My guest today is journalist, author, intellectual, style icon, former ladies' man, and bon vivant, Edward L. Corey. I'm your guest, Jan Jaffe. I'm, excuse me, I'm your host, <laughs> Jan Jaffe. Welcome to In Depth. I'm going to read an introduction from a new book Mr. Corey has in the works. I'm a red, white, and black American born in New York City. My academic life comprised public school one, junior high school 65, the South Kent School, Amherst College, and Columbia University School of Journalism. For a solid portion of my life, I used my looks and academic pedigree to take advantage of the dearth of men due to the war in Vietnam. I appreciated sex, but not love. I thought I was entitled. I lived a healthy lifestyle. Then, at the age of 66, I was diagnosed with cancer. After almost two years of leaves of absence, I retired from my job writing advertising. The commute was an excruciating ordeal. I was always in style. Every few years, I've renewed my wardrobe. Just before I received my cancer diagnosis, I had stocked up on new suits, shoes, shirts, socks, vests, outerwear, every item an urban and urbane man requires. I own about 50 pairs of dress and casual dress shoes, about 25 suits, and about 30 hats and caps. I have a separate but just as extensive wardrobe for my country life. I learned recently that my doctors are pessimistic about my survival for longer than a year. When I got the news, I was wearing a brown slim-fit suit, walnut loafers, walnut belt, brown and white pebbled socks, and yellow shirt and pocket square. I toted an Irish walking stick and a brown tweed Applejack cap. Despite my illness, I have continued to dress as I did going to work every day. The latest turn of events won't change that. Seeing me elates everyone in my doctor's office. Elegance elevates everyone. I'm delighted to have Edward L. Corey as my guest on today's show. Welcome, Ed. Thank you, Jan. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I have to say that as I was reading that, it reminds me a bit of, uh, for anybody who's a Seinfeld fan out there, Jay Peterman. Um, so I don't know. This will this will resonate with people who know what I'm talking about, and with people who don't. I'm not going to go into an explanation now. But anyway, um, I really enjoyed that that piece that I read, and that's why I wanted to share it. The number here is six four six seven one six nine three nine seven. We welcome your calls, questions, comments, and contribution to the discussion. We would love to hear from you. The number again is 646-716-9397. So first of all, I just want to thank you for agreeing to be on the show today, Ed. You've had such a varied and interesting life. I'd love if you would share a little about your early years with us. Early years. I grew up mostly in uh, the Lower East Side of Manhattan, in the Alfred E. Smith projects. Went to public school one, which was, you know, about three blocks away. And uh, it was a really mixed neighborhood. You know, lots of um, black people, Irish people, Italians, uh, Jews, Sephardic and Ashkenaz. Uh, Chinese and uh, you know so I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of people and and the funny thing is that we all operated on an even plane it wasn't like you know racial wars although sometimes the Irish Catholics would would have a problem with the Italian Catholics Um, but Until the age of 12, uh, 13, I lived down there for the most part and attended school and dealt with my neighbors. Uh, So that's, then I was um, given a scholarship to go to this prep school. It was, you know, we were members of Trinity Church down on Wall Street. We We belonged to one of its parishes. And the school was all white, and they were looking for a person to integrate it. And, you know, I had a pretty good reputation down there as a somewhat of a scholar and a Boy Scout and Little League. I was, I was a real goody two-shoes to, for the most part. So I took this test, passed, and went up there for four years. And that was another... Uh, Experience. Uh, it was, you know, I never felt uh, that there was like a racial thing going on there. Mm-hmm. I realized later that there was, but while I was there, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, have to confront it. So that's pretty much my early life. Hmm. I didn't, okay. you know, they didn't let us date, uh, have visitors really at school. We had no weekends, and you know, I was um, had no experience with girls. <laughs> so your your private prep school um, was in Connecticut. So yes. um, you were sent away. I guess you were twelve, and so you left 
the Lower East Side, the projects at that age. Um, how did that affect your sense of self and self-identity? Um, it, it put a, another sheen on it. It put another layer on me. The you know the result of my being there. I was elected to student council. I was a captain of a baseball team. Uh, and there are a lot of activities that you could engage in, which if I were somewhere else, I would never have gotten a chance. There was a debating team. So I joined the debating team. There was the glee club. Um, there was uh, the chess club. There were sports. And... Our time was pretty much um, used. We didn't have very many um, free. We didn't have very much free time. And if we did, we'd go out and we'd play touch football, or we'd throw a frisbee around, or or do something. You know, we were never um, bored. And this was also um, this was a boarding school. And um, how did this? And, and again, this was the years. I think it was. Was this in the 1960s? Yeah, this was like 61 to 65. Mhm. So, of course, those were different years than there are now. And not knowing how prep schools are run now, in in those years, um, how did it affect, say, your, you know, the the your your um, I guess manners, or or it it uh, I I would think that um, that prep Absolutely. school. Absolutely, that was the correct word. Manners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you learned how to eat right. <laughs> no shoveling, because there was a uh, um, uh, they call them masters. They had teachers, but they were called masters, and each one sat at the head of the table for lunch and for dinner. Mm -hmm. And also a senior would sit there. And they would enhance your your eating presentation um, because you couldn't eat like an animal. Uh, You had to eat everything they, they put on your plate. The conversation was stimulating. Uh... You know, in terms of which fork, which knife, how to use the fork, things like that. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it was a place where you had to wear a tie most of the time mm-hmm. and a jacket. And you couldn't even wear loafers. Loafers were forbidden. Mm. So there was... You know, all kinds of style, but it was, you know, casual dress or dress. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and, you know, they would tell you, okay, you know, when you drop your arm, your sleeve length is supposed to come this far. Here's mm-hmm. how to tie a tie. This is this kind of tie, that kind of tie, or not, this kind of knot, that kind of knot. And so they were preparing young gentlemen, basically. It sounds like not you know not just educating 
you on academics um, and probably the, the scope of academia that you um, were exposed to was different than you might have um, been exposed to in in regular city schools. But here you were with students from wealthy families who were also um, preparing you or educating you about how to be a gentleman and how to have a successful life. Is Am I correct in, in that assumption? I would say yes. Uh, we had people from Japan, mm-hmm. France, Turkey, you know, different different um, elite foreigners, mm. and uh, and the people who weren't absolutely rich mm-hmm. were usually the sons of a bishop or a rector mm-hmm. or someone high in the uh, Episcopal Church hierarchy. So, how did this? Well, let me first say um you are you have um you you are very light skinned and you have um blue green aqua eyes. So how did then adding this to um what you're learning now at prep school? How did this affect you when you would go back home for vacations into your old neighborhood? Well, the majority of my old buddies were very—they were resentful. They—they uh, they wouldn't even greet me on the street because they thought that I was um, kind of lording it over them. Or you know, it, I wasn't, but they mm-hmm. thought, well, you know, he thinks he's so bad because he was sent off to school. You know this prestigious school and mm-hmm. it really wasn't that uh, it was all in their minds not mine because you know certain people remain my friends but the majority kind mm-hmm. of uh, resented my good fortune so that was basically about their interpretation um, right. right right and and so then it, it kind of made you a uh, uh, n- sort of an outcast in your own neighborhood. Right. I'm trying to think back to those days and and the things that pop out, and that Mm -hmm. was one of them. Uh, I had kind of gotten into music, too, playing the guitar, so that was kind of a solace. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So that definitely, that affected your sense of self-identity, um, figuring out in those years, and those are tough years for anyone anyway. Teenage years are mm-hmm. tough anyway, so figuring out where you belong, basically, um, right. in in you know in in the scope of life as you know it at that time. So you well, I knew choice. I didn't belong in the projects. That's for sure. And <laughs> <laughs> let me out of here, you know. <laughs> so um yeah so you had a choice of attending several excellent colleges on rather sizable or full scholarships what made you choose Amherst because uh, if i'm remembering correctly you were you had the possibility of Harvard as well um so well, um and- uh, 
I wanted, I didn't want to be in a city, to tell you the truth. Uh, South Kent was very rural. In fact, you know, we had four football teams in the fall. That's all they had was football. And they, were, they would have a, a potato uh, reaping competition where – because they grew their own potatoes. They had huge fields of potatoes, and they had to be brought in. So one afternoon for each team, we'd go out to these fields and pack the uh, sacks with potatoes. And whoever packed the most would, you know, get an extra dessert or something. Um, so uh, I forget what the question was. <laughs> what made you choose Amherst over oh, okay. the other, yes. you know, all the other so, choices yes, you had? It was very rural. You know, it was a lot of trees, lakes, mm. um, woods, uh, fields. And I thought, well, I, if I go to college, I don't want to go to New York. I would die in there. Mm. You know, it would be just too much stimulation. Mm. Uh, or Harvard, or any big city. So I wanted to get something kind of halfway. And asking around at school, you know, you heard people talk about which were the best schools, which they were dying to get into, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. And the one everyone pretty much spoke about in awe was uh, Amherst, because mm-hmm. Amherst had not accepted anybody from that school in in at least a decade or more. Mm-hmm. And so it was a holy grail. And I said, let me see, I'll, I'll apply to Amherst. And I had good grades. I was a good uh, athlete. I had a lot of, you know, I had debating team, chess team, uh, and whatever other glee club. So I had a, a full resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, to throw in to my application and mm-hmm. to uh, solidify my chances even better, I applied early admission mm-hmm. and I got in. You know, meantime, I was getting all of these solicitations from other schools. You know, we would like to invite you to, you know, apply to our our school. And But Amherst just seemed... That was top of the line. So -hmm. that's where I uh, decided to go, sight unseen. Wow. And, you know, I don't know too many people who get solicitations to attend their Ivy League schools. So that's um, that's pretty impressive. So, um, and something I want to get back to later, so please remind me if I forget, is is you're talking about the country. And um, Mm -hmm. Ed has a country estate. So uh, that he's kind of built. <laughs> so uh, we'll talk about that later. Please remind me if I forget to bring that up. So you are a lover of words, women, and knowledge. Um, you per- also pursued a career in acting and modeling in California, and you later returned to New York. In fact, if I remember correctly, it was you went to California, you came back, and then back to California and then back to New York. So after many years, several marriages and a passion for writing, health practices, 
along with a number of positions, either writing or editing, another one of your passions, you chose to return to school in order to receive a master's in journalism and, as mentioned before, you attended Columbia in New York City. What got you interested in the use of language? In public school, let me check that. My parents had books in the house, encyclopedias, big, fat dictionaries with lots of um, uh, illustrations. And, you know, my father also liked to read um, novels. He was a reader. And so that got me interested in language and, you know, the definition, the, the dictionary and the encyclopedias got me interested in a whole bunch of different subjects and a whole bunch of different words. So that was, that was pretty stimulating and it helped my, in my academic development. So, for example, when I took the test to go to um, South Kent, you know, I aced it. And plus, public schools were excellent in those days, at least the one I went to. Mm-hmm. And we would write stories. And, you know, in sixth or sixth or seventh grade, some friends of mine and I, you know, we put out a little satirical newspaper. We couldn't print it, but we would put it up on the bulletin board. Um <laughs> And you know they took it down. They didn't like the they didn't like the title of the uh, magazine or newspaper. It was, we call it the trash from Newburgh. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, well, can't you can't you come up with a a better title? I said, for what? <laughs> you know, the title gets you in there. So. Uh, that's where my writing um, interest began. And the other uh, interest, there were a lot of writers at South Kent and writers' sons and journalists and, you know, I mean, successful New York Times editorial sons um, and you know that was part of the competition too to see who could write the best. Mm. Uh, we had a school newspaper, and all of us were on it and it was it was a pretty good paper you know we have uh one of the writers is now like a cultural writer um, a culture writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer another guy uh it was a Pulitzer became a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, columnist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we had some talent there, and plus, you know, it was a friendly rivalry. Who could write the best? Who could write the craziest? Who could write the you know this or the that? And that that kind of solidified what I wanted my. Uh, career to be. It took me a while to segue into it, but um, I really um, got stimulated by the people Mm -hmm. around me. 
Wow. So um, I love that title, The Trash from Newburgh. Um, <laughs> and I have to also say that when it comes to titles, you even suggested the title for today's show, Dying in Style. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, You want to get to the dying? Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and unless you want to talk about it right now. but um, No, we'll you get to working... it whenever you want to get to it, and I'll get to it whenever it happens. Okay. All right. Okay, that's a that's a deal. So you were working on a book about a cruise ship that went down in the '60s, and you you worked on it on and off for for years. Um, would you care Would you care to share a little about that story with our listening audience? Well, okay. Um, back in the early '70s, I was rooming with a guy, a Jamaican. And uh, he was another big influence on my life. Uh, he had he had worked on a ship as a steward. And in the middle of the night, the ship had caught on fire. And the water system, you know, firefighting equipment, you know, wasn't kept up to date. Um, the lifeboats had never been used, and the paint was so dry, you know. It was like trying to uh, pull a car that had no wheels on it. Um, and he, you know, he was, uh, as I said, Jamaican. And, they, and the people on these ships were all different um they were from all different kinds of Caribbean cultures and even some, you know, Eastern Europeans. Um, so, you know, they had their own view of how the world worked. And part of his view is that it took at least 24 hours for a ship to sink. No ship has ever sunk within 24 hours, you know. And that was his belief, and that was a belief of a lot of the guys on the on the thing. And even though the flames were like just devouring the ship from one end to the other, you know, he didn't worry. He didn't worry about it. And uh, so, after helping people off the ship, he actually um, had personally climbed over the side is a woman inside uh, one of the rooms and she was kind of halfway out of the porthole screaming for help. So he had been running by and heard her so he jumped over the side and with one arm, you know, he tried to, he, he pulled her through the porthole and didn't know at first that she was a big woman. And... (laughs) You know, and he was like, he's like 5'9", you know, well built, but still you're holding on to a railing with one hand and you've got this fat woman dangling from your arm. Uh, And so some friends came and grabbed him and helped him bring her up. And she said, my friend is down there. She's still down there. So he went down uh, back again and kind of, got to a position where, you know, he could look through the porthole 
and he saw her friend fall back into the fire and be consumed. So, you know, he came back up and told her friend was okay, you know, she got, she got out and he didn't want to worry her. And to make a long story short, uh, he had run down to the the alarm system wasn't working too well. You know, so people down in the cheapest staterooms or whatever they were called would um uh, didn't hear that there was an emergency and that the ship was on fire. So he had run down there and he started waking everybody and everybody ran out and he thought, well, you know, since everybody's gone, I'll just get all their wallets and stuff they left behind so I can give it to them when, you know, I get back to shore. I can, you know, that was like his rationale. He and, he and a, a friend of his, and they had like four four pillowcases each filled with loot, <laughs> basically. Um uh, and trying to get out, they eventually got caught in a firestorm there. And he got through, but his friend um, panicked and finally made it through. And uh, my roommate said, well, you know, where are your, where are your bags? And, he's, you know, where are your pillowcases? He said, man, I dropped that. So... So they were down to half of what they had started with. Uh, finally, they get up onto the the main deck, and everybody's gone but them. They're the last two guys on the ship. And, you know, they started banging on things. We're talking about, you know, like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And so it's not like they can be seen. They're, they're, they were black men anyway. You know, and it's dark, but they had to make all this noise. And one of the uh, rescue vessels uh, shone a light on them, and um, somebody said, that's Bella, that's Bella, go back and get him. And the guy who was the pilot was saying, no, no, it's it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. We can't get up to the ship. And my roommate's friend said, well, if you don't get up to that ship, I'm turning this boat over, and we all need help. So the pilot steered up to the ship, and they jumped into the boat with their pillowcases. And as a result, he was elevated to almost godlike status because when a ship goes down, the last person to leave is supposed to be the captain. But in their culture... The last person to leave the ship is the most powerful person in their world because mm-hmm. he surpassed the captain. And, and on, you know, on the sea, the captain is God. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was the, the muscular part of the story. And then there were other things that were going on, how the... You know, there was a Coast Guard investigation, and they changed some of the maritime laws as to, you know, safety. Uh, mm-hmm. and as a result of this. Yeah, as a result of this particular incident, yeah. And there was also a, a Life magazine article 
about this. Right. He got his picture in Life magazine. Yeah, he did. Wow. So it it was really quite something. I just wanted to clarify something. You mentioned you referred to your roommate. You were referring to this gentleman because you became roommates uh, later on. Right. I learned all of this after he became my roommate. You know, Mm -hmm. he had the magazine. He had all the documents uh, Mm -hmm. relating to the federal investigation. And And when you referred to... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say when you referred to Bella, you were also referring to him as well, correct? To my roommate, yes. Right. Okay. Uh, so he had tried to get people to write his story, and nobody really wanted to write it. I mean, you know, he's a little black guy from Jamaica. What are we going to write about? You know, um, it's probably a lie anyway, but... I, you know, he asked me if I would um, write it for him. I said, well, you know, I write, but I'm not really a writer. I was working for an insurance company, and then um, I started working for Earthshoe, you know, the original Earthshoe, but not in a writing capacity. But he knew I wrote. Well, of course, you had these little little jobs supporting. I've done everything twice. So you worked on the book for a number of years, and it's still it's it's never been completed yet, but it's something that you've you've worked on for years. And I know that um, he's also he's done a lot of things, and he's a very colorful uh, character. So um, hopefully, sometime soon, this will be a work that you complete. It would have to be real soon, (laughs) but. Um, yeah, it's, you know, you have to remember that I also spent time in California, um, Mm -hmm. so I didn't work on it then, and I couldn't get him out to be with me to work on it, and, uh, you know, no excuses, I, I, one of the reasons I really wanted to go to journalism school is to make sure that whatever I was writing and what I was doing, there was a plan to it. There was an, an underlying um, structure mm-hmm. as to, you know, the history of writing things. You know, there are, there are, when you go to journalism school, you know, they teach you the basic formats. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, different formats of, you know, for example, the, there's the, the little E, they call it, and you start where the, the horizontal bar meets that little C of the E. You know, the, well, in that crux. And uh, you start there and you go forward with the story. And mm, you get to a yep. certain point, And then you start to backtrack, which goes up the, the curving part of the little E until it comes back to the point where you began. Uh-huh. And then you f- continue the story onward until you come to the ending, which is the little tale of the little E. Mm-hmm. So that's that's like one format. And, you know, you learn all of these things. Plus you learn how to interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I realize is that in working with my roommate, uh, you know, I was interviewing him. I was trying to get certain information. And mm-hmm. knowing him, you know, he te- he does tell tall tales. Because, 
he tells tall tales, you know, and uh, so you it it sounds all great. It's great, you know, and then you say, okay, I'm going to review these notes, and I put everything mm-hmm. on tape, so it was better than notes. And I would say, well, if that's the case, how can this happen? Mm. And so I would question him, and he'd say, why are you questioning me? And I said, uh-huh. because this doesn't make sense. Well, you thought it made sense yesterday. You laughed. I said, yes, but, you know, it did. It was funny. So basically trying to determine the fact from the fiction. I t- and yes. when you have somebody who is a character and who does tell wonderful stories, that can be very challenging. And right. you studied... Um, you know, it sounds like you study journalism, same, the same reason somebody would go, you know, a, a wonderful, very talented pianist, say, would still go to, to get a couple of degrees in music in a conservatory because they want to learn the technique and they really want to be, you know, a, real, a scholar in what they do and really excellent at what they do. Um, Absolutely. You know, I just want to take a moment to uh, to refer to our sponsor here um, on Life Coach Radio Networks. We're proud to have as our sponsor Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of premium premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet, offering customers a new way to enhance and enrich their lives every day. Audible is the preeminent provider of spoken word audio products that include more than 100,000 audio programs from more than 1,800 content providers. Receive a free audiobook with your 30-day trial when you sign up with Audible today at audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. That's audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. Now here are some Audible books related to today's topic. Off the Cuff, The Essential Style Guide for Men and the Women Who Love Them, written and narrated by Carson Cressley and... Christian Dior, The Man Who Made the World Look New, by Marie France Pochna. So don't forget to sign up for a one-month free trial to get your free audiobook today at audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. Audible.com, making listening a tool for life. And now back to our show. Um, If you're just joining us right now, uh, today's guest, is uh, style icon and journalist Edward L. Corey, and this is In-Depth with Jan Jaffe, and today's title is Dying in Style. So, um, so Ed, you know, I just wanted to bring up uh, cooking. You have become an excellent cook over, uh, I guess, the last decade in um you know, actually really in in the last decade, although you've always cooked, but you've really, um, as you do with so many things, you've really started studying it and become quite a student of cooking. In fact, you love to make uh, huge Thanksgiving dinners, whether you have a house full of people or you're just alone, uh, eating Thanksgiving dinner alone. So, do you want to tell us how you got so very interested in cooking and you know and and equipping your kitchen 
with so many um, culinary, uh, shall we say, tools and instruments and even appliances. Yeah, but I could torture somebody to death in this kitchen. I got all kinds of <laughs> prongs and <laughs> hooks. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I've pretty much been a um, a bachelor most of my life, despite having been married more than my share. Uh, when I moved into my first apartment, I was living on bacon and beans mostly. I would fry the bacon and then take a can of Campbell's and pour it in there and have a slice of white bread. Boy, that stuff was good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I never uh, was into health. Well, I wasn't into health. I, You know, I played sports in uh, high school or prep school and then, you know, did a little bit in college also. But once I got out, my my interests turned to how much time I could spend out in, you know, bars. I was working for an advertising agency at the time. And, you know, we were young guys. And, you know, we had fun chasing women, going to Szechuan restaurants, which were new at the time, you know, seeing who could eat the most hot peppers in a single <coughs> mouthful. And... uh we would experiment, you know, guys would come back from Japan and they'd have a little tins of uh like crickets, fried crickets. And everybody had to give it a shot. So the only thing about the cricket is once I um uh, I tasted it, I said, Man, I remember tasting this before. <laughs> 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 And it was, you know, and and my mind immediately shot to, you know, the Boy Scouts when we would camp out in New Jersey there, or in Staten Island, they had a big Boy Scouts camp. And uh, I remember this peanut butter sandwich tasted pretty good, and then there was this little fluff of <laughs> of kind of, well, which I learned was like insect. Uh <laughs> So when I ate this cricket, you know, it was uh it it was exactly the same. That was a a memory mm. that fluff had burned into my brain. Uh but you know, the, we ate over the campfire and whatnot. So uh that's how I was eating beans and bacon. Beans and bacon. Um until I met my who a woman who become my first wife and she was uh, she was a health nut. She was one of the original health nuts and her father had been one. He had been an exhibitionist in a way, you know, he was one of these guys who would lay on a bed of nails and then have you break a stone on his chest with a sledgehammer. That was his that was his shtick. Uh and she started introducing me to foods like, you know, fresh collards, um, these well-constructed sweet potato pies, uh, fresh food, 
and organic foods and stuff. So I became interested in it, but I I didn't uh, didn't have to do it because she did everything. She made all the foods, and when she would go to work, she worked on the weekend. She was a a bunny at the uh, Playboy Club down on uh, what 59th Street or whatever near the Pan Am, bu- not Pan Am building, but between Fifth and uh, Madison. So when she would go to work, I'd have to make my own dinner, and my own d- dinner always consisted of Jarlsberg cheese, a steak, and some carrot juice, followed by a uh, a Bloody Mary, big Bloody Mary. <laughs> and that was the, uh, you know, I, I had graduated from beans and bacon to uh, uh, steaks in uh, Yarlsburg. Uh But that also was the extent of my cooking. Until I went to California, she and I separated and I moved to California. And there I was really forced to choose a, a culinary style from, you know, and it couldn't be bacon and beans anymore. It couldn't be steak in Yalsburg anymore because I learned eventually that I was allergic to milk. All forms of milk, cheese, yogurt, whey, uh, lactose, uh, lactic acid, anything like that it was, it was bad for me. So I had to learn to make things that didn't contain that. And I, you know, when I first got to California, I loved it. I loved the lifestyle, you know, and being a, and I loved dairy at the time, you know, kefir and cottage cheese, uh, some Jarlsberg, until I read a book that said, if you're allergic to milk, it's the worst thing in the world for you. And if you're not allergic to milk, it's the best thing in the world for you. Mm. So I said it's the worst thing in the world for me. So I had to start um, finding alternatives to that because I was into weightlifting and I had got to my optimum weight. And once I cut that dairy out, boy, I started shrinking like somebody let the air out of the balloon. <laughs> uh, so... My my cooking turned to, you know, one-pot meals, mm-hmm. very slowly cooked so I could do other things. And, you know, it might be potatoes and lamb uh, with some carrots and rice and potatoes mm-hmm. all in one pot, and it would cook it very slowly, uh, season it up. And... The other thing was, I we had mentioned my old roommate, Drew. Drew was known as the best Jamaican cook in New York. And he knew a lot of people. We had all kinds of gangsters and pimps coming over to our apartment. To um, and They would just throw money at him and say, man, you know, why don't we get a meal? And he would make these tremendous um, stews and puddings and um, 
pork, plantain, uh, all of you know, all of these uh, Jamaican dishes, big with these broad beans, these big lima bean type things, and uh, and I remember how he made his rice. You know, he would take a a hunk of coconut, put it in the blender with some water. And then he would cook the uh, he would cook the rice in that water. Mm-hmm. So you had the coconut rice uh, along with his spices and things. And and some of these things, you know, I learned. So I would throw those into my uh, my me- my menu when I was in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was also not making a lot of money. That's the one thing. About Calif- you know, Southern California, I didn't like. I could never make a living there, so, you know, I learned how to re- how to economize, you know. And you make your you cabbage is cheap, so you buy a cabbage instead of lettuce and stuff, and you you julienne that all up, and then you put some soy sauce and some oil and vinegar and make a mm-hmm. cabbage salad. So, uh, all of these things started to accumulate to make my, you know, cooking philosophy. Uh, I came back to New York after about six and a half years. And again, you know, I had to uh, pretty much fend for myself. But, you know, my mind started drifting back to when I was young and how my mother would make, like, pig's feet or chitterlings, or uh, fried fish. And I said, you know what? I didn't like all that stuff back then, but I all of a sudden have this taste for it. So, you know, I started experimenting with, you know, making pig's feet, and it came out pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people uh, think that's disgusting, but and chitterlings too, but... You know they're very, um, very tasty uh, items. I remember when I was with my roommate. You know those guys would eat. You know fry up some pig's ears. They had all kinds of weird stuff they would eat. I I wouldn't go that far. I maybe I ate one or two pig's ears. I couldn't deal with the cartilage. You know. Hmm. Um, so basically, I I. Just to fast forward a little, this is, I mean, this is also interesting, but you got, later on, you you started studying, you got cookbooks, you got more, it, it sounds like as you journeyed along with cooking, you just got more and more interested, just like you did, in a sense, with journalism, um, to studying, to really studying uh, the art of cooking. Well, yeah, I... Bought a, um, I bought the Fanny Farmer cookbook. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a pretty simple, uh, basic American cookbook. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say apple pie. Man, I haven't really had a good apple pie in a long time. Let's see if I can make an apple pie. Right. You are, you have, I mean, you began making, I mean, so many pies when you were, before you became ill, you made a lot of pies. And not oh, only yeah. was it 
the the variety, but it was also you used all these organic ingredients. You made your own crusts. You you studied different recipes, cr- created your own. Um, and for you, it was not just making something to eat and enjoy, which is obviously or maybe not so obviously one of the the main incentives for you for cooking and making good food was that you loved to eat um despite being the fact that you're very tall and very slender um mm-hmm. you loved to eat but you also enjoyed the act of creating this and you enjoyed the you know as a pastime spending a morning or an afternoon putting a pie together, baking a pie. and um, mm-hmm. So um, I want to get back. I don't want to, you know, cut off this conversation about food, but we still have so much. We're, we're going to run over today, so I'm going to just let our listening audience know we are going. This is going to be a longer show than usual. Um, and I also want to invite anybody to call in if if you have any questions or any comments at, at all, or if you want to say hello to Ed. The number here is six four six seven one six nine three nine seven. Again, six four six seven one six nine three nine seven. So I want to get into you know because of the the title of the show is Dying in Style. Let's talk a bit about style. So um, you mentioned when you were in prep school, they started teaching you about how how a gentleman dresses. So um, I'm curious at how you how did you learn so much about men's style and its rules? Because you really are quite knowledgeable on all of this. I'm sure a great deal more, in fact, than what they taught you at South Kent Prep School. Well. South Kent was basically Brooks Brothers, you know, that that's their style. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I learned that, I learned those rules. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of uh, drifted away from that for a little while, but uh, back in, after I returned from California the first time, I just started, you know, looking in store windows. You know, in California, you don't you don't really walk down the street and look in, you know, store windows unless you go to Hollywood Boulevard or someplace like, you know, a commercial zone. Uh, but in, you know, living in Manhattan, wherever you go, there's any number of various kinds of stores. And a lot of them were men's stores, and I'd walk past and say, oh, man, that's a great suit. The other thing was that my uh, first wife, she liked to dress me up, too, so she would buy me suits and uh, leather coats, and, you know, if I saw some boots, she would get those, too. And after a while, you know, I started accumulating a wardrobe, one that people would comment on. Mm-hmm. Say, wow, that's a nice suit. Or, wow, man, where'd you get that jacket? You know, oh, I love your boots. And that's positive reinforcement. You don't want them to say, you know, hey, bozo, uh, <laughs> you know, where'd you where'd you get that outfit there, uh, clowny? Uh, but yeah, you know, I started I started slow, 
And, you know, I did, I got, when I got out of college, I didn't really have any money. And she had plenty of money working at the Playboy Club. The money was just pouring in. And she just wanted to shower me with it. Uh, so that kind of, you know, that happened before I went to California, but it started, you know, it gave me a seed knowing that the way you dress creates opportunities for you because Mm. people look at you a different way. In California, the only thing I had that was dressy and classy were shoes, but then I found out that in California, you know, they don't care. You're wearing jeans, you're wearing a torn shirt, but what do you got on your feet? Hmm. That's the most important thing. And I would, you know, go to, you know, art exhibits and people would come up and try to sell me paintings that, you know, were so far out of my league that, <laughs> you know, there were 20 leagues under the sea or in the sky. <laughs> but it was basically based on your shoes and the perception people had about you. That's right. And I always had good taste in good shoes. My mother always, she was very careful about that with us children. Mm-hmm. That, you know, our shoes were good quality and they were mm-hmm. the right size. Primarily that they were the right size. So you uh-huh. basically, you picked up a lot of this Basically, as you mentioned, with your first wife and living in New York, growing up in New York, always being aware, and then you began to understand that this really, as you said, opened up doors of opportunity and also affected people's perceptions about you. And just like with everything else in your life, you basically made a study of this over time. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it's it's not necessarily a study. You just... It just hits you and becomes a part of you. You know, you, you notice something and you say, ah, and then that that starts to influence your next decisions. Well, um, you've also mentioned um, you've also mentioned that um, a man's belt is supposed to match their shoes, and those both those that that is supposed to, or the tie that they wear is supposed to have a color in it that matches the belt that, and the shoes. That matches the uh, shoes, yes. The, um, so, yeah, so where did you learn things like that? Because um, I, I, I'm curious that I, I'm not, I wouldn't think that you just perceive that, you just pick it up, or maybe well, you do. Well, there are certain ways you can... <laughs> You go to a store or a haberdasher or whatever, and you you see something you like, mm-hmm. you know, you get into a conversation with the salesperson mm-hmm. who might, you know, impart some wisdom. And sometimes mm-hmm. they don't impart some wisdom because, you know, you, you learn, for example, if you're wearing pleated pants, they should have a cuff. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a reason for having the cuff. Uh, if it's a flat front pant, then you don't need a cuff. Uh, as so what is the reason for having the cuff when you say there's a reason? What is the to weigh down to weigh down the bottom so that the, for the flow? So uh, you know, because, the pleat, because of the pleat, because so of the pleat, pleat yes. bladder. Now you right. see what that's one of those things that. Virtually nobody really knows 
except maybe somebody in the business. Mm-hmm. And so I, that might be described as, well, I, I think it's definitely described as one of your passions, fashion and style. So right. how would you describe the difference between fashion and style? Well, fashion is something you follow. Mm-hmm. Or some people follow and they think that's style. But style, you know, you create yourself. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way I look at it. Um, you have a personal style. And mm-hmm. no one can, you know, I walk down the street these days to see these hipsters and these mm-hmm. little hats and the, their, their pants up to, you know, their shins. Their ankles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's fashion. And a lot of these fashions um, really... You know, I, I, I was looking at the fashions that they were wearing like in the uh, 80s, 90s with the backward caps and the big pants and whatnot. And I said, you know, there was a guy in the 50s that they called the Clown Prince of Baseball. And that's his style. And I see all these Clown Princes of Baseball walking around. And then I see these hipsters walking around now. And it's sort of like, remember Pinky Lee? Or, or people like that, these other kind of clowns. These are clown. <laughs> these are this clown sh- uh, clothes to me. Um, mm-hmm. And you only do that when it's in fashion. Maybe the first person who comes out with it, that's his style. Mm-hmm. But then somebody else sees it and they follow that and, and they follow it to, you know, ridiculous, to ridiculous lengths. So it's almost like a trend. Well, yeah, it is a trend. It's one mm-hmm. way of, you know, trend is one way of looking at it. It's, um, I think in some cases, you're looking at a person who's wearing a certain style and uh, it might be new, it might be clownish, but if they're successful with it, then you, it's just like, okay, it's like Beatles, the Beatles come out, and the next thing you know, everybody's got a Beatle haircut. Mm-hmm. You know, the, mm-hmm. to the Beatles, it was a style. To all these other people, it was a fashion. Okay, um, we could get into hair, but that's a whole other. Because <laughs> there is a picture, uh, there is a, a a photo, a professional photo uh, taken from some event. Where you're you're dressed in a, a lovely suit, if I can. You're dressed beautifully, and your hair, you had this wild hair which you sported for a long time, and that was your style. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, how would you describe your style? Do you have any any way of describing your style? Well, um, right now, <laughs> what I find is that my uh, from my body type mm-hmm. is a, a, a slim fit suit. Mm-hmm. You know, fits me right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's nothing outlandish about it. It's mm-hmm. um, I, it's just the coordination of the tie and the the hanky and, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you want and you want. You want everything to fit. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you want your pants length to be not too long. You don't want to, you know, be like uh, one of the seven dwarfs, you know, with, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with your <laughs> pants kind of like watering up and down mm-hmm. uh, your shoes. Um, but you want a, a certain kind of break mm-hmm. in the uh, the trouser line, mm-hmm. you know, and the fabric counts too because how it uh, drapes is very important, and how it mm-hmm. fits in the waist and, and in the shoulders uh, and in the waist. Mm-hmm. So it. Um, so that's my style as far as a suit is concerned. The other thing is that I don't buy cheap shoes. Mm. I try to. I used to just buy Church's English shoes um, until they were bought by another company, and the quality seems to have like dropped. I haven't found any shoes these days that are comparable to the shoes I used to see, like in the uh, the eighties or even. A lot of the nineties. Mhm. Um, and you do have a passion for shoes. You know your shoes. You love. You take such great care of your shoes. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, someone once I forget where I read it or heard it was that uh, uh, two pairs alternating your shoes. If you have two pairs of shoes, alternating them would last longer than uh, three pairs worn consecutively. Consecutively? Yeah, if you wear one pair all the time until you have to buy a new pair, and then you wore those every day. After three of those equals two shoes, you alternate them every day. Um, so I okay. just uh, I just added a, <laughs> an, a, you know, like an exponent to that, <laughs> and figured, they, well, if so I have fifty pair, that'll last me a lot longer than a, a what seventy five pair worn consecutively. <laughs> yeah, I have shoes from, I have twenty year old shoes that people think are new. Mm. So you know. Um, we're going to get into some pretty serious stuff here. Your life centered around writing, building and living on your country estate. We didn't even get into your your music. You love music. You played in a band. You uh, worked with Gene McDaniels, anybody who might remember who that is. Um, you, you, you love writing music, but I, I don't think we really even have time to um, get to that today, um, but uh, hopefully, um, if anybody, maybe at some point you will you will um, put some of that online so people can find that as well. But anyway, getting back to uh, what I was saying, your life centered around writing, building, and living on your country estate. Oh my God, we haven't even touched on your country estate. Eating an organic diet and living a healthy lifestyle. So what I want to ask you is, when did you begin to feel ill? as though something was quite different? And how did it manifest? Looking back, uh, uh, 
I look back and I see that there were certain things that were happening in my body that I didn't pay much attention to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got my yearly uh, physical, uh, got all my shots, you know, my flu shot and whatnot. Uh, but I don't know, maybe about seven years ago, I remember feeling this little pain in my um in the gallbladder area. I know that because when I was uh, about 22, I had gallbladder problems along with all other kind of internal organ things going on. But uh, I said, well, I know where my gallbladder is. And that that's, you know, I would take, leave work. I'd say, yeah, I'm having a little abdominal distress here. Uh, but I didn't think anything of it. Uh and then about four years ago, well, maybe five years ago, I started getting all kinds of illnesses. You know, I've had, I got tuberculosis, uh, not tuberculosis, what's the other one, pneumonia. pneumonia. Pneumonia? Yeah, I had never had pneumonia before, and, and I had a pretty bad case of it. Um, and then the next year, you know, up in the country, I was walking around the... Uh, the yard, or whatever you want to call it, and uh, and something kind of stung my toe, and the toe in a couple of days turned black, you know, and I had to run to the emergency room and get a dose of uh, antibiotics. Now, this was a pretty big dose, and the year before with the pneumonia I had had, antibiotics and then I got another respiratory uh, infection even though I'd had the pneumonia shot not long after I got over the pneumonia and I was starting to lose weight and then all of a sudden you know I was uh, I had diarrhea a lot and one day I looked in the mirror and I said holy moly I looked like uh I look like a ghost. Hmm. You know, I I had been a, uh, you know, I had used to weigh maybe 175 pounds. Yeah, and, and you're six, almost six two, right? I'm six one. I'm closer to six oh. one, especially these days. And, uh, you know, I had mu- pretty fairly muscular shoulders, muscular legs. And I looked, and it, my shoulders were gone. And I said, oh, man, I, I better start checking this out for, for intensely. And uh, so I went to this clinic down on 34th and Park. It's uh, Beth Israel. And I went there because it had been recommended by my urologist, and they take you very quickly. You go in, and they take you quickly. And then, you know, um, they started putting me through all these tests. And uh, because of diarrhea, I had to, you know, do all kinds of, you know, take all kinds of samples and and put them in bags and whatnot. Mm. I mean, it was, like, not fun. Uh 
And finally, I went to, they sent me to a hematologist, a surgeon, this, that, and the other. And finally, the hematologist said, well, you know, uh, we're going to have to give you this shot once a month. And, you know, that's when I learned... That's when I learned that you know this is this was pretty serious. It's called neo neuroendocrine tumors in my um, in my liver that were like satellites of another one that was in my pancreas. Mm. And the shot was basically to turn off the hormones that the cancer sent out that made you go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So. They, Did they um, actually? They hadn't actually given you a diagnosis, though, had they? At no, that they point were talking cancer? about meta, metatasis, met, what is it, metas- metastasis, metastasis. Yeah, metastasis. Did they actually yeah. use that word at that time, though? Yes, yes. They did. Okay. You know, but you know, in my mind, I'm going well. You know, they didn't say cancer, so mm-hmm. maybe this is like a a precursor or whatever, and. That's how I um, knew I was sick, and they were going to give me the shot for every month for the rest of my life. And you know, the doctor says, "Well, no, you know, this could, you know, your life could go on another ten or twenty years." And every, you know, all the tests I was receiving after the diagnosis they said well if you're going to have somebody said well if you're going to have cancer that's when I um, I, it started to sink in he says if you're going to have you know this disease I don't think he said cancer then Mm. this is the best one to have so I think it was you who told me it was cancer very possibly yeah, and I really didn't want to. I didn't want to. Nobody wants to it. hear that. Nobody yeah. wants to hear that. So, in the meantime, I was still maintaining everything that I was doing. I was even had even continued going to the gym, but not as much as before because I would, you know, it was like really um, sucking the energy out of me, and. Uh, you know, so I started seeing this doctor, and I they started doing these procedures on me. But uh, the procedures, which of which I had four, they call embolizations. Oh well, wait a like minute! Plain- but that was uh, excuse me for interrupting. You eventually went to Sloan Kettering. Yes. The famous yes. Okay. Let, cancer I hospital in New York. You got it. Yes, you're right. That was, when I was went that? for a second opinion. I wanted ah, a second and, opinion. And when was and that? That was like three years ago, two and a half, mm-hmm. three years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is starting to be a, a, a memory stew with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so I you've had been a patient at Sloan? Yes, and you had these yeah. procedures. And what we were finding was that the procedures, it was like playing whack-a-mole, <laughs> you know, because they would knock out some of these little tumors, and then they would appear elsewhere in the liver. 
Mm-hmm. Or they would, you know, they had a little halo around them, and that halo would start to grow. Uh, mm-hmm. because so they the haven't been able to. They haven't been able to control them. The, right. The basically, um, the 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 metastases in the liver um, just continued on despite the um, surgical procedures. Yes. Yeah. So. But this is a, a form of a rare form of pancreatic cancer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know they they had other procedures that they want to do uh, because I have this thing called hemoglobin C disease, which is sort of like um, sickle cell, but it's not sickle mm-hmm. cell. Mm-hmm. And your blood cells—I don't know, white or red, whatever they are—you know, they're kind of shaped like C's. Which your spleen sees as damaged. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not really damaged. They just shape funny. But the spleen sees them as damaged and starts to suck them up. Mm. And that enlarges the spleen, but it mm-hmm. lowers your blood count. And right. And- and recently, I don't mean to um, interrupt you, but recently you've had two separate, when I say recently, probably within the last month, is it? You've had two um, hospitalizations. One, right. One was a, an emergency uh, when you were collapsing, and um, you received some, was it three uh, blood three transfusions? Three units of blood, yeah. Right. And then um, uh, I, I don't know how much later I, um, you ended up when you went for your regular doctor visit. Um, right. They hospitalized I, this, this you. Follows from the, this follows from the spleen stuff is mm. that, you know, my, my blood count was always low. And this mm-hmm. was known since I was 12 years old when they found the spleen and then examined mm-hmm. me and took blood and said, we've got a hemoglobin C. Um so my blood count started falling drastically as as mm-hmm. well as my blood pressure. Mm. And I called my doctor and they said get the highest go with thou to um uh, an emergency room. Mhm. Uh which I did and they took me in immediately. I went, you know, I didn't go in the ambulance uh entrance. I just mm-hmm. walked in. And they took my blood pressure, and the next thing I know, you know, doctors are descending upon me, and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. this is at Jacoby up here in the Bronx. And then um, most recently, just for the interest of time, I, I'm sorry, I'm just sure, jumping no ahead problem. a little bit. Um, so then, and then recently, when you went to your regular doctor appointment at Sloan, they did not let you go home. They put you immediately in the hospital. Um, you had a right. whole experience, of course, of spending all night in their emergency, but, you know, and they put you in a room because your blood pressure was so low. And then, again, you were in for about a week, and you had to have more blood transfusions, I think another three units, was it? Yeah, I was I was in like three or four days, you know. Yeah, um, and they... They um, get your blood pressure back to a steady thing and your blood right. count up to... And then but they, they also brought 
then they also brought in specialists. Uh, you had to have a bone marrow biopsy, biopsy. and they um, they have now uh, you have been diagnosed in addition uh, to the pancreatic, the neuro, what they call peanuts, the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. That form, that rare form, a very rare form um, of pancreatic cancer, you have now been diagnosed with um, multiple myeloma. Um, they're still, they believe it's in the, the smoldering, the early, the very early stages, but um, you have more tests coming up um, to determine all of that. Um, so um, you're kind of in this stage, and in your recent visit when you just got diagnosed with multiple myeloma, you received um, a prognosis um, of, and again, doctors really don't know. They just, they, they kind of guess, but you received a prognosis of um, maybe a year. And well, yeah, he said... Uh you know, I had to squeeze him to get that year out of him because he said a few months at first. And I said, a few months? And he said, yeah, but it could be a year, you know. It, it, it could be a year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the thing is that these, you know, I get this shot once a month. Now they want to give me these other medicines once a week, which really cramps my style because I like to spend a lot of time up in the country. Right, you know, that's your the country only place, state. That's the only place I really feel like close to being normal. Let's just talk for a second because we are running, we're getting close to the end of and uh, uh, Sorry to suck possibly. all the oxygen out of the show. But, uh. No, 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 you're not <laughs> sucking any oxygen out of the show. I just want to make sure we cover everything. You have this, this beautiful uh, piece of land. It's, what, 50, 54 acres, 51 54. acres? 54.11 acres, yeah. Wow, yeah, and you have a cabin. I mean, you started... When you first were up there, you started. You were staying in tents, then a, um, a, some kind of a hut, and then a you built a wigwam. Excuse me, and <laughs> and then you you have this beautiful cabin that was built. It's exquisite, and um, you built a porch, and you um, you're, you have a, a well that you pump water, and you're off the grid. There's no electricity. You have you were planning and may still be planning to put in solar, but it's 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 definitely off the grid and it's beautiful and you love this lifestyle. It's something that you had wanted to do for years. You'd own this land for years, so this is where you want to spend some more time. And when you're up there, you do feel rejuvenated, and um, you have a birthday coming up in December. You're going to be 69. Mm-hmm. It's, and um you uh one thing that our audience probably doesn't know is that most of the time and for quite a long time now if you were not if you're when you're home which is especially now most of the time you are in bed and in fact you're in bed right now is that correct <laughs> yeah i'm in bed i'm yeah, waiting for and- my uh 
the nurses, the aide to come, and my physical therapist, they're all coming after the show. Right. uh, Yeah, and so so your life has changed, uh, and you have continued to push forward, and you have pushed yourself. You worked until you just, the, the trip to work was too much. You said the job wasn't. What job it was, was easy. It was just. Uh, it was uh, the trip that was. It, it was beyond commute, your capability. Right. Yeah, it, you're you're so exhausted, and you've yeah, been it wasn't exhausted worth it. actually and they didn't for a have while. Any places to, you see, I can exert myself for a little while. Yeah. You know, when I'm up in the the woods, it's like okay, well, you wanna you need to chop some wood, so you chop wood for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, and then you and then you rest you know, for how long? Then you rest for like two hours. Yeah. Uh, so how how has this experience changed you? Obviously, it's affected you, and we've already discussed. But how has this? Would you say has this changed you, if at all? Your you know how you perceive others, how you connect to others, how you connect to even your own life. How has this experience changed you? Well. Uh, I'm not as combative as I uh, as I used to be. Um, right now, I'm in a dispute with uh, the co-op I'm living in, and I was withholding my maintenance, uh, hoping that they would sue me and I could go to court and show the uh, the court all the transgressions and and why I haven't been paying and I have, you know, mm-hmm. food from the city, blah, 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 blah. But then, you know, I said, do, do I want to go through all that? Mm, right. So it's basically you're you're really seeing what's important, what, you know, what is not as necessary. It's almost like it's distilling some of your priorities. Uh in a sense, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I call them up and I said, look, I'll just pay you. And mm-hmm. I just get this off my plate. Because I have other, your life is a series of of events. Mm-hmm. Things have to take place. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to be capable of handling them. And I've been to court maybe three or four times in the past year. Mm. to uh, get a judgment against them for the damages to my... How has this experience, though, okay, I don't mean to interrupt, but how has this experience maybe changed how you connect to other people? Because I've heard you mention that it has, you have developed an empathy that maybe you didn't have before. Uh, Yeah, I'm more patient with other people now. Mm. You know, um, I'm, I've never been that patient, you know. What do they say? He doesn't suffer fools. Uh, well, I suffer them now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I have to. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm not going to suffer any stress. Mm. You know, to tell you the truth, my mind is is pretty much at ease. Mm. I and uh, it's not. I don't like the energy and whatever else it takes to get down to the doctor's office, which, you know, I mm-hmm. seem to be doing more and more often. But the thing is, when I'm going down there, one of the things I look forward to is dressing up 
to go down there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I remember one time I went down there and I was wearing just a turtleneck and a, a three-quarter leather coat and some jeans and, a, you know, a, we used to call them bop caps, but they call them apple jacks or thug caps now, cabbie hats. And uh, and the nurse, the nurse practitioner, she says, what happened to your suits? <laughs> Why are you not wearing your suit? I said, mm-hmm. you know, I said, you know what? This is a beautiful turtleneck. This is a beautiful coat, you know. I mean, you know, I don't have to wear a tie all the time. And she says, "Yeah, you're right. You're right, babe. Boy, man, we 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 can't wait till you get down here." So, you know, because they want to know what I'm wearing. Right. As you said, so, elegance ele- elevates everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you another little story, just really quick. I was wearing a um, what the uh, you know it just slips my mind, but it's uh, you know it's like the the striped suit with white and blue pinstripes. Uh, yeah, it's pinstripes, but it's a certain kind of suit uh, uh, fabric that they call it. Uh, anyway. Oh right, I can't think of the name either. Okay. Right. And I had on a a nice white Panama hat and white shoes, and I'm coming home around the corner, and, you know, this young man walks, is walking my way, and he says, that's a nice suit, Pops. (laughs) And, And that was the first time anybody had called me Pops, and I knew that, you know, that was like the beginning of the end. So um, uh, I, we're not going to be able to end the show. Uh, I just wanted to ask really quickly. We won't have a normal ending to the show today. I just want to, if if in if maybe in in a minute or less, you can answer this. What might the Ed Corey of today tell the Ed Corey of 1985? That the uh, the toilet paper really does run faster when it's towards the end of the reel. <laughs> goodness thank you so much ed Corey, for being on the show today i'm jan jaffe and it's been my privilege to have been your host today um if you want to get in touch with me i'm info at forward to success.com um and you can you're invited to share any comments or feedback on our website lifecoachradionetworks.com uh please join Please join me next week uh, for Think Tank on September 28th. It's uh, at 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much, Ed, for being on the show today. It has been a real honor and a delight having you with us. I know we all wish you our very, very best. And um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Have a wonderful day. And thank you. You too. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.